With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of my Everton podcast. Glad to have you along for what I think is going to be a searching, questioning, but ultimately entertaining look at Everton, present and past. The past, well, that comes in the form of a couple of enlightening and interesting interviews with former striker Paul Rideout and the one and only Joe Royal. And uh, though it saddens me to say, of course, the winning goalscorer and manager of Everton's last trophy success back in 95. Yes, it's 25 years ago this season since silverware adorned the cabinets at Goodison Park, the longest ever trophyless run in our history. Paul Rideout will discuss that and his Everton career. And if you've heard the song Leaving on a Jet Plane, well, he left Everton on a Kawasaki. We'll explain that one a little bit later on. And as part of an in-depth interview with Big Joe, he talks about his time as a player and manager and he opens up about how he left the club back in 1997. I was very much involved in that and the conversations he had with Peter Johnson at the time and who he thinks was the best player and interestingly the most skillful player and they're not the same person, I'll give you a clue, in his time at the Blues. All to come a little bit later on the podcast. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by one of my favourite Evertonians, the Liverpool Echo sports editor, Sir David Prentice. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Dave, as I mentioned in the opening there, 25 years ago this season since our last piece of silverware, I don't think anyone at the time would have believed you if you'd have told them that it would be that long. So I thought I'd present two questions for discussion today. Firstly, why, despite seven managers, a number of near misses, it has to be said, and some top quality players have Everton not won a single thing. And question two to you, Dave, is can a man who even has the word silver in his name bring some silverware to Everton this season. Over to you, Dave. I think a massive opportunity was missed um, in the circumstances surrounding Joe's departure. Um, I I really do think that was a a very turbulent time in the club's history that could have been avoided. If you think about what Joe achieved in a very, very short space of time, uh, he was only Everton manager for... For yeah, one full season, was it like two, two and a bit it's years crazy, he was there for? Outrageous. And in that time, didn't lose a single derby match. Mm. Uh, guided Everton to sixth place in his only full season. And then he missed out on Europe when Dennis Bergkamp decided to score 12 minutes from the end of uh, yeah. Arsenal's last match of the season. Won an FA Cup. And then he had three bad months. If you remember that 1996 Christmas time, uh, we'd won one nil at derby. Nick Barnby scored the winner and uh, Richard Keyes spoke. It was live on Skype. Was that, uh, Joe Parkinson had an absolute cracking shot uh, which hit the crossbar. Hit the crossbar, yeah. yeah Barnes put the rebound yeah. in with his yeah. nose, I think. Yeah. And uh, Richard Keyes said afterwards, Everton must be considered dark horses to win the league. Mm. 
No one laughed. Everyone thought, well, yeah, fair comment. They do. And if you think Boxing Day, Andy Hinchcliffe did as Crucius against Leeds. He was you know, key to a lot of our play at the time. Joe Parkey sustained an injury over Christmas time, which basically ended his career. Waggy, uh, Dave Watson, got an injury, which took him out for two or three months, which is why Joe tried to sign Bjorn Torek Varme, the, uh, the, the Swedish lad. Um, so the spine of the team was ripped out. And for three months, we did have a dreadful run. And the pressure started to tell. But even then, you know, it, it weren't in relegation danger. You know, so I think, you know, the... the I think Joe says that in his interview, yeah, actually. Because he, he says that if, you know, if, we, if there was any threat of relegation, he wouldn't have left. No, know? exactly. Um, you know, the, the storm clouds, you know, were beginning to gather. And I still remember Joe spoken to me many times about what happened, you know, so those few days. And um, he'd gone to see a regular meeting with Peter Johnson at Park Foods. And Sir Desmond Pitcher... Uh, who was a director at the time, had, for reasons that only he can explain, uh, rung Peter Johnson and said, oh, Joe's coming over to see you. I believe he's going to resign. And, you know, Joe certainly didn't have that in his head. Uh, Peter Johnson wasn't expecting that. So when Joe arrived, uh, he says, hello, Joe. Uh, you know, I'm told you're coming here to resign. And Joe says, no, where'd you get that from? You don't want me to, do you? And that was how it started. And he's always said subsequently that if Cliff Finch had been around, he was on holiday at the time, I think, in South Africa. If he'd have been around, he says, he'd have just knocked the heads together and said, behave yourselves. You know, so get on with it. What, what are you thinking of? But they didn't. And then they ended up, like an hour later, being mutually consented. Now, I don't think Peter Johnson had it in his head that he was going to, you know, lose Joe. But he did. I don't think he had it in his head who was going to replace him, which is why we had that really long and tortuous situation where he was hanging on for Bobby Robson and wasn't ever really going to leave the job that he was in. He thought about Andy Gray. He was never going to really leave the job that he was going to be in. And uh, it took a while before, you know, so he eventually decides, well, you know, I think it was a last throw of the dice. Howard, Howard will come back. You know, we know he'll yeah. take the job for the third time. You know, being in the office when so when he the did, yeah. Came. And and Howard, you know, so the magic had left, lost. Unfortunately, he wasn't the same manager he had been. So that was a difficult year. And then it was, you know, so who do we get in then? And then Walter Smith came in, and it was it was just a very turbulent time that could have been avoided just for two or three months of, you know, just just by being sensible. And I think also there was a problem financially, wasn't there at the time? Oh, I mean, wow. There was, a, yeah. you know, speaking with Joe in, in the interview, which you'll, you'll hear a bit later on. You know, one of the things he sort of makes mention of is is players who, you know, he he wanted to bring in, and Peter Johnson didn't have that. And that was just under Joe. So, of course, when Howard came, you know, who I believe, and I'm pretty yeah. certain in saying, you know, wasn't he wasn't a manager that Peter Johnson wanted. No. It was a case of that that was his last resource. Exactly, such. yeah. Now, you're talking about the financial situation. And I always remember, um, I mean, Peter Johnson, to give him credit, you know, was trying to be ambitious. Mm. He was trying to speculate. Mm. He was allowing the club to spend money, but it was allowing the club to spend money it didn't have. You know, he was underwriting the debts, but, you know, it was Everton's money, which sure. wasn't there. And Walter, quite innocently, was told money was there. So he was on the spending spree, Olivier Decor, Marco Materazzi, John Collins. Yes. But we knew there was a problem uh, when David Unsworth, who's a good friend of mine, had, uh, you know, bizarrely signed for Aston Villa even though he didn't want to and uh, phoned me that night I've made a big mistake you know so please give Walter me a number you know so I, I need to get back to Everton so I didn't know Walter he only just arrived at the football club and um, I said to him at the pre-season friendly at Chester I says uh, Walter you know so can I give you a phone number no 
No, he was like, I said, no, Walter, look at the name on the number. He looked at David Unsworth, his number, put it in his top pocket. Okay, cheers. And I said to him afterwards, look, not interested in, you know, sort of doing a story on it. I just want to get him back at the football club. So he said, yeah, I want him. I fancy him. You know, so we really must push for this. And Peter Johnson just went missing. You know, so he'd, he'd gone into hiding. He used to and go it, missing for weeks. Well, it was only after yeah. he'd, he'd signed for Aston Villa that, you know, he suddenly emerged again. And then Walter realised that, you know, so he did want him. So he managed to uh, persuade him to release the three million quid that it would cost to bring him back. The club didn't have it. And it was only like, you know, so later in the year we realised that and we had to start selling the players that the club had actually bought. And it was, it was such a very, very turbulent time in the club's history. Uh, make a great book and, one and day, do you think, I think you should you know you're the man yeah. to do it. And do you think that um, that was almost a catalyst to what's, what's happened in the... I mean, because as I said before, I think it was seven managers, um, you know, countless... Good players, you know, there's no doubt about that. Um, and I guess, okay, we've been to the final against Chelsea, but I don't think anyone really believed we were good enough to beat Chelsea that day. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you explain that? How can we explain that? I mean, there's, there's, I think I looked at a list of Portsmouth, Birmingham, Wigan, um, uh, Leicester, I think, possibly Blackburn yeah. Rovers, all won trophies since. Yeah, the, the clubs that you've listed then, um, all had, you know, fairly friendly draws, you know, so in the early stages of the cup competition. And Everton, for whatever reason, just seemed to, to miss out on that. I always remember when uh, Liverpool won the cup in 92 and, and drew lower division Sunderland. teams every single round, uh, including the final against Sunderland. Sunderland yeah. When Everton got to the cup final against Chelsea, it was, it was, it's, being actually, you know, scientifically analysed to be the toughest cup draw that any club had ever had to get right. to Wembley for yeah. a cup final in terms of the relative position well, of the teams. Well, we had we, in the uh, Exactly. And so, you know, so to have to overcome that. So, you know, lacked a little bit of good fortune along the way as well. And then we shot ourselves in the foot, you know, got into positions like 2012, the semi-final, leading 1-0 and looking, you know, got comfortable and then, you know, what possessed Sylvan to stand to play a back pass like that? Who knows? Uh, the team lineup that day wasn't great either. I think my guy Gay had played on the left because mm. Stephen Pienaar was ineligible. Just little things like that that, you know, sort of made a big difference. And it is, it's quite quite shameful, really, when you think of a club of Everton's stature and history and heritage to go 25 years now, the longest period in the club's history, without winning a trophy. Can it be and, about and with, mentality? People talk about mentality, you know, of a mm. club and, and that sort of, not having a winning mentality. I mean, I can't believe anyone at that football club doesn't want to win on a daily basis. No. But but is there a sort of, is there, you know, another accusation thrown at the club is it's too soft, it's it's too, it's not, you know, I'll I tell you the, 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 the example I give, uh, I watched the whole transition of Manchester City coming from what I would actually call a poor man's Everton at the yeah. time, you know, a team who were under the shadow of the, of the, the more successful club. Um you know, and, and I, I saw overnight a ruthlessness develop in a football club which wasn't there before. Yeah. And I wonder, and I, I know some, some people throw this accusation at Everton, are we ruthless enough as a football team and a football club? As a football club, you would have to say under the Farhad Mashiri era, we have been because, you know, he's not been slow to make changes. You know, he's, uh, he's axed managers, some would say a little bit too hastily at times. I mean, Ronald Koeman, had a very, very tough run of fixtures to start that season, didn't handle them well and was sacked. Sam Allardyce was brought in as a short-term measure and he was sacked. I don't think Farhad Mashiri wants to be seen as that kind of owner. I think Marco Silva is a manager that he coveted and a manager that, you know, he pushed the boat out to land. And so I think he wants to give him time now to show that he can put his ideas into practice. As far as 
players are concerned, I think they do have a winning mentality, but I think winning a trophy makes such a difference to a football team. I've seen it. I've seen, you know, sort of how an Emerson team that was young and that was talented, but lacked a little bit of confidence, maybe was transformed by winning that FA Cup against Watford and has suddenly, you know, dominated everything for years afterwards. Winning a trophy just gives you that little bit of je ne sais quoi, something, I don't know, that little bit of extra confidence that, you know, you can do it, you can be a winner and you need to land that first trophy. That's the hardest part. And once you've landed that, suddenly, I wouldn't say it becomes easier to win trophies, but, you know, the mindset is slightly altered and slightly different and players believe that they can do it. Uh, So who knows, you know, so if the League Cup can be kind to us this year and we can get past Watford and draw Colchester or Crawley in the quarterfinals at home, that'd be nice. That was the next question. I mean, that was question two, really. Um, You look at Marco Silva and and up to now, yes, okay, you could argue that this lower league opposition, you know, but those games are the ones that have stopped us in the past. You know, two decent performances against Lincoln and Sheffield Wednesday, two performances that you would expect from... You know, he took a little bit of stick saying that we should go there and remember who we are, wherever. Yeah, yeah. You know, and two two performances really that, that have echoed that. You know, and is he? Do you think he, he he could be the one to bring back silverware? Well, I think Farhad Mashiri will give him every opportunity to prove that he can be. And let, let's be honest, if it is going to happen, it's going to be in the cup competitions. You know, because. The, the levels that Manchester City and Liverpool are setting at the moment are absolutely outrageous. You know, it's going to take something to even get close to them. It's not attainable for a Tottenham no, or a Chelsea who no, are it you isn't. Know, in a position. So it needs to be the cup competitions, which is why I'm pleased that Marco Silva has treated them with the respect that they deserve to be treated this season. Uh, the team selection against Lincoln City was strong, as it needed to be against the team that got to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup only a couple of years ago. They're, they are tough on their own patch. Mm. Um, and then Sheffield Wednesday, equally, he made a couple of changes, a couple of tweaks, but equally it was a strong starting lineup. It's got to be the same against Watford. You know, so they're at the bottom of the table now. They may make changes themselves because the Premier League is so important to them. So we've got to take advantage of that. Um, and he's got to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, we don't know. There, there have been flashes last season uh, of a really good side in the making. You know, the 4-0 against United, the victories against Chelsea, Arsenal. But what he's not had in that time is momentum. Even that little run of really good results was interrupted by a dreadful performance at Fulham. Um, so every time he's had a good five or six match run, there's always been one result in it that makes you think, well, hang on, is it quite as good as we think? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know, the jury's still out. And um, you know, that's why... You know, there's a little bit of disgruntlement among some of the supporters at the moment. They want to see meaningful signs of progress and we're not really seeing it consistently at the moment. So I can't honestly say that, yes, I think he would be the manager to bring Silver where we just don't know. But but do these managers, you know, and we look at four in the space of, I don't know how long, um, you know, not very long in comparison to the way Everton have done business before that. Yeah. Are these managers now, you talk about that little bit of frustration creeps in and it seems to be creeping and understandably creeps in very quickly now from yeah. supporters. Are they suffering because of that? Because they don't have that, you know, they don't have that time. Yeah, very much so, yeah. It's um, it, it's a very different football world now, you know, so a very different world full stop. You know, people make knee-jerk reactions all the time. Opinions are expressed in 140 characters, you know, so very, very quickly. Yeah. And uh, it, that, it's difficult for football managers to, you know, so get any kind of time at a football club I mean, you think of the patience that Everton have showed in the past with managers. I mean, two and a half seasons in, Howard Kendall was, you know, allegedly, you know, sort of ready to be shown the acts yeah. and wasn't and became the most successful manager in the club's history. David Moyes, after his first 
one and a half seasons had that dreadful end to the 2003-04 season. Oh, 5-1, that was a shocker, yeah, that, yeah. 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 But, you know, having got safe against Tottenham on Good Friday, then lost six of the next seven games and, um, you know, had a dreadful end. But again, the board was sensible, the board was calm and uh, stayed, you know, so resolute, finished fourth the following season, incredible. Even then, 05-06, dreadful start to the season, but managed to, you know, we were a roller coaster club and then steadied it. And David Moyes was, was massively underrated the job he did at Emerson Football Club. He gets quite a bad rap, I think, of what he did for the football club, you know, so in a you know, long period of time. Uh, but, you know, nowadays, the, the board needs to be sensible, needs to be resolute. It needs to give Marcus Silva the opportunity to prove that he can make changes at the football club. It's a long-term project. They've got all the elements in place now. Marcel Brands is a very, very impressive individual as a director of football. Um, you know, so he's basically... Slowly but surely changing the transfer strategy of the club and changing the makeup of the first team squad. You've got to give time for it to take uh, take hold and you know to actually produce results. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, thanks very much there to Dave. Now there are many fans who were not even alive when we last won a trophy, as I keep being reminded on social media. So let's hear now from a man who scored the winner against Manchester United in that FA Cup final in 1995, Paul Rideout. It was Howard Kendall who went to Glasgow Rangers to buy him for £500,000 as a legendary striker was about to leave Goodison Park. It did come out of the blue. Um, I I think um, Sharpie was on the move um, and he needed someone pretty quickly, but they didn't have a lot of money, I guess. Um, and my name came up. Um, and while I was there, I was enjoying my time at Rangers, um, but I had the option to go. And obviously, um, you know, Everton is a huge club and the opportunity to come back to the Premiership, um, I wasn't going to turn that down. So, um, you know, I went down there, um, spoke to the boss, and, um, you know, everything turned out. Um, pretty well for me. Uh, what sort of club did you come into at Everton, do you think? Um, for, probably more in transition. Um, a lot of um, senior players were kind of finishing up. Um, and then, you know, some younger players were coming through. Um, so it was, you know, it was in transition and it was a tough period for the first year. Um and, you know, finances weren't there to be able to do what, let's say, Liverpool have done and Man City have done at the time. So it was, you know, you, um, fans had to be patient. Um, and it was one of those things, you know, where we just had to get through a couple of years before we could um, turn the table. And I think it was a little bit of a difficult start for you, really, wasn't it? You know, with injuries, it wasn't the best of, uh, of starts. You know, you had a bit of bad luck, didn't you, I think, injury-wise? Well, the first few games, I thought, oh, great, this is going to be good. We beat Man United 3-0 away, and, and we'd had a couple of good results, and it went downhill. Um, and I've always said it. I, I, there was one game in particular, which we were playing Bolton, um, and the, I don't know if it's a League Cup or the FA Cup, but we were 2-0 up, and we ended up losing 3-2. And I'm up in the stands, and fans are turning to me and having a go at me, and I thought... Said to my wife, we may not be here this that long, and um, you know, it, Sunderland had come in for me. Funny enough, this was about three months into the season, and um, you know, I, I, was, I was saying to my wife, I think we could be on the move again. Um, but anyway, it you know, things started to turn, to turn around a little bit, and um, 
you know, I, I started, um, you know, doing reasonably well. And, um, you know, things went on from there. And, of course, the things changed as far as the manager was concerned, didn't they? And, and Mike Walker came in. And what was that time like for you? <laughs> uh, in a word, difficult. Um, very, very strange, strange person. I wasn't the only one to say that. There's many, many co uh, players that were in the same boat. Um, I thought he was particularly lazy. I've had many coaches in my career. And uh, I haven't seen one considering where we were and what what was going on. Um, you know, he, he wasn't a hard-working coach, in my opinion. Um, I didn't rate him. I didn't think he was very good with the players. Didn't think he was um, tactically aware. Um, and um, I, I don't know too many goal, ex-goalkeeper coaches. He, he'd had a reasonably good time at Norwich. Um, but he hadn't been outside that environment and he knew that group but coming into a brand new group and I think he, it was a little bit too big a job for him um, and um, again I, I wasn't a big fan of his um, and so that, that's all I'm going to say on that Yeah, I mean I think some I've spoken to a number of players from around that time and they all say the same sort of thing that they felt the club was just too big for him is that, is that the opinion you got or Absolutely. I mean, it, people don't, until you come to Everton, you don't realise how big it is and how big the expectations are. Um, you know, and, and um, for, for someone like him, you know, they had, Norwich had a good run. It's a bit like Leicester having a good run. And then the following season is where you're going to be judged on. Mm. Uh, but he came into a, a tough job. And it wasn't easy for him. Don't Don't get me wrong, because... You know, again, it, it's um, expectations are high, and um, maybe he didn't have all the tools he needed. Um, but at the same time, he didn't help himself. How do you deal with that as a player, Paul? I mean, how did how did you deal with it? You know, yourself, you just have to keep going and training hard, and you know, how do you deal it? You do. I mean, that that's when you have to be careful that the dressing room doesn't split. Those who are playing and those aren't. You don't. You, I, I don't think I've ever been a problem in a dressing room. As far as if I'm, if I'm not playing, I'm disappointed at my, um, you know, not being on the field. But at the same time, that that's that's up to me to to change his mind. Um, but um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at kind of Man United. Their dressing room seems to be a little bit strange. Different age groups, more experienced players. And like I said, we were going through a transition even then with him. Um, we didn't really have any, any set um, 11 or a main 11 um, back then. And, and um, you know, and, and he, he just didn't make any sense to me when he was on the training field, what we were supposed to do. Uh, there was, you know, what... I'll give you an example of him and then Joe Royal work, uh, walking in the door. Um, and then within a week, we knew what we were supposed to do, mm. you know, and it was, it was so different. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's really a good comparison. Is this not, there's no excuse for a coach, an experienced coach. Um, although I don't think Walker, Mike Walker was a, an experienced coach. He'd done a couple of years at Norwich, his home, home club. Um, and then he, he came out um, to a much bigger club, um, and obviously it was too big for him. But as you alluded to it there, um, 
what a change around when famously, obviously, Joe Royal came back to the club. And I know I was around at the time and I, I remember the sort of smile on his face, you know, when he talks about that in the interview I've done with him this week. And, you know, it, it, the, the place just lifted. I mean, the first three games, I think Liverpool, Chelsea and and I think uh, Leeds we played at, at home. And, you know, it was it was an incredible difference, wasn't it? Well, it was. I mean, you know, in all honesty, everything went for us. Um, the Liverpool game could have gone either way. They, Liverpool were better than us in the first half um, until we scored. Um, and then we, we we turned it around and we got some belief in that game. And then, you know, we if you look at those three games, they were all tough games. Um, yes. You know, they're three games that you wouldn't want when you're down the bottom of the league and you need points. But... You know, that the Liverpool game was a turning point. Um, and then you come to the Leeds game and then the Chelsea game. And, and you know, there's, it was just a good period that um, was perfect timing for the whole squad. Um, you know, and I've always said about Joe, all he did was bring laughter back to the players, made us feel relaxed. You felt like you could talk to him about anything, not just soccer. He's just a cool guy. Mm. Um you know, even even when I wasn't in the team, I might go in his office and we'd have a conversation. But I'd feel ten times better walking out mm. when I did get in, and, and his door was always open. Mm. It, and, and of course, things changed for you at that point because I think you, I think you scored fourteen goals that season. You went on to score goals. Yeah, I, I, I had a good season. I, all, all said and done on that season, and it was it was um, you know really enjoyable to score the goal at Ipswich as much as the goal in the final just to secure our, our um, safety um, you know that that's what it felt like all the time that we were fighting relegation with a side you know a, a club um, as big as Everton um, and and then that was a turning point with Joe the following season obviously the, the, the team did very well and got into fourth fifth place was able to buy a couple of really special players because mm. uh, Chelsea was was a huge buy and a smart buy, yeah. um, and um, you know that that was someone like Joe um, with his personality was able to bring someone like him in. But but Joe talks about that goal at Ipswich actually, and he says that that was his biggest achievement at Everton, not the cup final. It was that in, in the fact that they achieved that safety after it looking so desperate, and and he he spoke glowingly about the goal that you scored that day. You know, it, it's quite amazing when you think about it and how footballers and how managers feel about these things. Yeah, it, it is, and and he's quite right. I mean. When he came in, I think we, we had a ridiculous four points, something like that, after about eight games. And, you know, and, and um, no self-discipline, no shape, no, no, no nothing. That's no easy fate to come in there and change that up. Willie Donaghy was excellent as well. He, he played a big part in that. And he did a lot of good organising straight away and gave us shape. And, you know, he used what we had to the best of um, the ability of the team and, and, you know, the dogs of war stuff. But we had some great workers that, you know, I, I think everyone was willing to do it. Then we had Duncan, who's a little bit special in, in that respect. Um, he frightened people. Um, but we just had a solid group was willing to work for each other, and, and, and that was the turning point. But, you know, the, the game, I always remember how well supported we were. Um, I would even go down to the Wimbledon game was my favourite game. Um, not favourite as far as I know what you mean. Yeah, 
the atmosphere of when we'd just gone 2-0 down and the noise that the fans still made was just unreal. That's what kept us going. That's what kept us on that time. And then, you know, Everton have always been renowned for fabulous support um, wherever we are in the league. And I, you can't always say that about a lot of teams. Mm. They, they're following. Newcastle's another great great team with great following. But there's a lot of clubs that those fans disappear when when times aren't good. And But Everton have always been... Um, lucky enough to have fans like that that support you. But I must move on now to that crowning glory and, and obviously the, the cup final. And uh, I mean, what, what, what were your feelings going into that game? Um, we weren't nervous. We were just there to enjoy it because we got our safety. And, um, you know, it was Man United and, and everyone, like Tottenham semi-final game, everyone's expecting us to win it, uh, to, to lose. And, uh, we just went out there and enjoyed the, the whole weekend. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, it turned out very well. But um, all, all the pressure was on Man United having just lost the league by a point and coming in and out to win to, to give their fans something. And, um, you know, we went out there and enjoyed it. And I think that was the difference. And I was speaking with Anders Limpard the other day and he said, you know, we, we, in the dressing room before the before the game, we just felt that we could win on that day. We, we genuinely yeah. felt we could win. Yeah. We, we we actually, you know, and then you look around the dressing room, it was a, it was a good, it's a good, hard-working group with two or three really special players that will make a difference. And that's what it was. I mean, you know, if you look at the game, Obviously, Man United were the better team, and so they should be. The money they've spent and, and the size of their squad and the players that they had. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's not just about that. It's about the heart of the team. And I think that they were still suffering from losing the league to a certain extent. And, um, you know, um, and, and we were upbeat um, and ready to go. And I don't think they were for the first 20, 25 minutes. It's about mentality, isn't it, I guess? And, you know, when you look, talking of that, you know, you look back at the start of that year for you under Mike Walker and, and how it, you know, how, how did you feel walking out at Wembley and, 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 and being in the cup final? I mean, it must have been amazing. It was. I mean, I'd only ever been to Wembley as a schoolboy. Um, and it's always been a lucky um, ground for me. I'd scored, um, I think it was... Uh, six goals in um, youth soccer there. So it was a good ground for me for scoring. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, when you look at the build-up of that play, they'd had a lot of play, Man United. And, uh, you know, the, the game started fairly even, but then they started to take over. Um, and, um, you know, when, when you look at the counter-attack, how poor, poorly they um, organise ourselves and, and how we took the advantage because we didn't have many chances in that game mm. uh, and that's something that Joe had told us you know you've got to take your chances when they come up um, and, and we took that very, very well I mean that was a well taken goal all the way through uh, the build up to it the speed of it um, we used everything we had and um, you know even though Graham um, didn't score and maybe should have scored um, thankfully for me I'm still living off it so um <laughs> You know, during that goal, talk me through that goal, because as you say, Anders was, it was a great sort of pass from Anders, wasn't it? And, and I think, yeah, again, of well, course, Matt Jackson yeah. did really well. And, and then, but how, how do you, as a, as a striker, is that a natural instinct? Because 
you were just ready for that that ball coming back off the bar, you know. Well, I I, I honestly think, other than Duncan, I think I I was probably one of the best in the air for our team, and and you know the way that that came off the crossbar, it was like slow motion because it was it just popped up and kind of sat in the air. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I, all I did was focus on uh, put my head on it. Um, Dennis Irwin was trying to challenge me. Um, but just hit the hit the net, and then when I when I did hit it and it went in it, again, it was slow motion. And then if you look at, I, I sometimes look at the film, and, and like my reaction is quite slow um, <laughs> after it went back of the net. And then what do I do? What do I do? It's the FA Cup final. I I watched it many times as a kid, and then you hear the roar of the crowd, and then you know you go up to them. I mean, my celebration was uh, a lot to the to be desired but um, at the end of the day it's, it's, it wasn't then it was afterwards when, once the whistle went and you realise what it meant to the fans it, I mean it means a lot to the players but you know the fans have been suffering for some time then to, to win that for them um, it was pretty cool yeah, I mean, and, and and afterwards it was, I mean, you know, Joe talked about the party afterwards and the pipers and, and everything else, and, you know, it was just a special night, I guess. Well, I, I remember more of, um, we we got out of the dressing room and most of the lads had already gone round to the players' bar, and um, I was with a couple of players, and we were walk, walking around, um, and all the fans were still there, so we're walking around, and and that was my favourite part. That and and obviously coming through with on the bus, but um, just what it meant um, to the fans. Mm. You know, they they stopped and we had a quick chat. It took us about twenty five minutes to get to the bar, which was probably about six hundred yards. But it but it was fun just to see what it meant to them and how happy they were. It was just, it really was a, a great start to that evening. And then the evening itself was was, was fun. You know? uh, the highlight of your career, Paul, was it? Yeah, it, it was. Um, obviously, you know, scoring a hat-trick for uh, schoolboys was something special when you're, when you're a young kid. Um, mm-hmm. On a professional um, point, yeah, it was. Because it was Man United. Because it was the season that we had. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of things have, um, were <clears throat> in the mix there. And, um, you know, for a season that started off so poorly, who would have thought, what a great finish and what an enjoyable finish. So, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, can you believe we're coming up to 25 years and, and Everton, you were the, you're still the, the goal scorer, the last goal scorer to win a trophy for Everton? And, and that's sad to me, really, um, because, you know, w- we've had some money, good money spent now um, in the last few years. Everton's not a small club as far as financial backing anymore. Um, they have some serious clout, you know, and I'm still trying to understand. Like, I'm, I'm always trying to make my youth players believers in Everton and just tell them, you know, they get more playing time if they play if they support Everton and this kind of thing. And it's, it's, I'm trying to make them <clears throat> aware of how big our club is. Um, you know, but, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like looking last week. And I, I, I know from, from my experience, you know, it's, it's never easy. And, and that's why the Premiership is one of the best leagues, if not the best league 
because you can never say, well, we got Sheffield United, that's three points. Mm. It's not like that. It's just not like that. Um, as we know with the cup final, but I am, I am a little surprised that we've had such a slow start. I was really excited at the start of the season mm. for, for the group that we got, not just the, the starting group, but the, the whole, the whole, um, squad is strong, you know, and, and, and I, I thought a very, very good coach and I still do, but it just seems like right now no one can get it right. No one can get, they're, they're such a good group of players. What is the best 11 mm. and how are we going to make sure that, you know, they're consistent? Mm. Um, just, just to finally end on, on, on your time at Everton. I mean, it, obviously, I remember just a couple of things I remember from my time there. Is that one as a, as a reporter for local BBC before I joined the club. Is um, I, I remember. I think it was. It might have been after actually. I'm not quite sure. But, but basically, um, you, you'd played in a game, and I think you'd sort of. It was really terrible injury. You'd smashed your your, your mouth. Um, you'll remember this, I'm sure. Uh, how could you forget? And I remember sort of waiting in the tunnel for over an hour for you to come out of the dressing room to do an interview because it was such a bad injury. And then, of course, you come out and you said to me, you mumbled, I can't talk, you know, and <laughs> it was a wasted hour for me, of course. But it was a terrible injury. You must remember that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Des Walker and I, had, uh, you know, I'd known Des for many years. We played in the under-21s or whatever, and he's not a vicious player. It was just one of those things. I was pissed at the time, um, but... You know, he, he knocked all four of my front teeth out, and um, and he, he, I got I ended up with forty stitches. But they were fight, they were looking for my teeth to put back in. They brought the teeth to the hospital and all that stuff. And there was fans at the uh, the hospital. Um, I was still in my uniform, so it was, and I went through, you know, the normal emergency exit. Um, and uh, you know, people were looking at me as if, you know, what the hell is that? Um, but it, it took me a long time to get over that. I had I had a couple of weeks off um, before I, I could come back to training, and then it took me a, a month before I, you know, I was ready to go in for a proper challenge and do it again, just because it was, you know, it was quite quite a problem. I remember it was That's horrendous, it. and I think it was Sheffield Wednesday, wasn't it? You were playing. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, and and um, of course, moving on to you leaving Everton. I mean, again, I was at the club then, and I remember a game. It was the game against Tottenham, and I think you were you were trying to get to to China. And I, I seem to remember the last thing I saw of you was you were in the tunnel, and and I was helping you to get on a motorbike, and you were you were walking down with a hel a motorbike helmet on in the tunnel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, when you look back at these things, you you just can't believe they happened, can you? Well, you can when it, when you're talking about the press. Yeah, what a what a elegant exit, wasn't it? Um, yeah, uh, that was kind of strange, but it was the only way I could get through the traffic and get my flight on time. But uh, you know, it was. Um, How come you played? How come you played that day? I mean, I can't remember it totally. Yeah, um, you know, and then I ended up coming back. Yeah, and then playing another game, and then going again. It, it was just. It was a strange, um, strange exit because originally I was supposed to be going to Japan mm. with Aussie Art dealers, um, and then Joe had injuries to the squad and could let me go. And then the, the window closed there, but um, the Chinese club had come in, and uh, you know, um, but it was all rushed, and it was, you know, it's not like the Chinese league now, so much more organised and so much 
um, bigger than it, it, it was then. But you know, it was just a strange kind of uh, bunch of deals there. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember that day because I think you you ended up being man of the match that day against Tottenham. I thought you had a fantastic. I think you played in midfield, if I remember rightly. I did. I did. I, you know, it was uh, you know sadly, but. Um, you know, we won one nil. It's Gary Speed that scored the goal. I remember, um, and I'd had, I'd, I was part of the, the, the setup with the goal, and I, I so enjoyed that um, that uh, period of, of just playing in midfield. I, I I think in today's game, I, I will probably be a midfielder because of the pace. Mm. Uh, but I, I I felt I had good vision and and um, I could pass the ball pretty well. So. Yeah, I enjoyed that spot. That that was that was pretty fun. And uh, and now you you're over in the states. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, I, I um, sporting KC, which is an MLS team. That's where I, I originally was. Um, I spent five years coaching three teams in the academy there, which is a lot of work. Um, but um, you know, as it got more and more professional, um, it became too much work and. I just I just got a little bit worn out, so I, I ended up going um, to um, Arizona with RSL, which is Real Salt Lake. They're an MLS team. Yeah. Um, but I coached the, the young players there, which I really enjoy. Um, it, it's a fun place to live. Um, we, unlike you guys, we don't get much rain. We just had rain today, uh, yesterday, and it was it was really nice to see it because we don't get much of it. Um, and we're just about to get seven or eight months of, of weather where it's, it's 70 degrees and no no wind and sunny all, um, every day. So it's kind of cool. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an enjoyable, relaxing life now. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know you you and your, your lad and, and your wife, you, you, you all follow Everton religiously and, and you still care about the club. And I think a lot of people will be delighted to hear from you. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It was a privilege to, uh, to be on your podcast. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So there we are, Paul Rideout, all the way from the States, and we, of course, wish him very well in his life over there. It doesn't seem as if uh, he's going to get back here anytime soon, does it? Well, now on to an interview with the manager I personally enjoyed working with the most at Everton. I loved my time with Howard Kendall, Walter Smith, Waggy, of course, as temporary manager, and Roberto Martinez immensely. Um, All had their own styles and attractions, but Joe Royal just had that thing that made you really feel as though you were part of the team. Part of Everton, if you understand. His connections with Everton go a long, long way back, and we started by discussing how, at the age of 14, he became an Everton player. My father was born and raised in Manchester, and he always had an affiliation. Um, and after Munich, a lot of people were on the spot, United fans, if you like. Obviously, the, the tragedy had happened 6th of February 1958. But the club I always watched was Everton. A, a friend of um, mine, his father used to go and watch Everton every week, and he used to take me and see Everton. My friends weren't particularly bothered about football, but uh, the, the father was a big blue I was from a blue family. My my grandfather was a, a policeman in Chinatown, George Dainty. Um, he was a big blue. Um, my uncle was Uncle Norman Dainty, who was head of the Shareholders Association for, for many years. He was a rabid blue. So I didn't really have 
too much choice in the matter. But I was always going to go to Everton. There were there were a number of clubs: Chelsea, Arsenal, um, Man United. Obviously, um, a lot of the big clubs were were interested in me, but it was always going to be Everton. And what sort of a club did you go into? <clears throat> I mean, you were sort of what fifteen, sixteen, I guess, at the time. Um, I was still probably just just fourteen. I, I'd signed at fourteen. Oh. You couldn't. You couldn't sign until you were 14 in those days. Um, and I signed actually a week before my 14th birthday and they, they kept the, the contract in a, a drawer until I, I was 14. So my, as a first-year apprentice, I was 15. Mm. And then, as famously known, I was the youngest player in Evans history for many years at 16 years old. You still don't like James Vaughan about breaking that. I remember, <laughs> I remember it happening, you know. No, I did. Vaughan, he's, he was at Wigan with us last year and he, he's a great guy, you know. He, um, and, and, of course, Jose Baxter mm. has, has got the record now as well. So, no, I did, joking apart, I used to pull his leg about it, but it's a great record to have, the youngest player ever. Mm. It was about 40 years I had the yes, record. Was, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, as I say, as a spotty 16-year-old, it was a great achievement. When you think back about those times, you know, you look now, it seems a regular occurrence now, doesn't it? 16-year-olds coming into sides. You know, we see it in the Premier League often. What was it like as a 16-year-old coming into us? Because everything seemed older then, didn't they? You know, people seemed older, you know, in the head. And was it daunting? Was it... Well, it, it wasn't It wasn't um, what you would call very, um, very popular because... I was replacing Alex Young, you know, and Everton had let the side out. Harry Catrick had let the side out the night before to the press. So I'm, I've am i left the, the, the ground probably about 4.15 after the boss had told me I was playing. Um, he said, providing it's not, uh, the weather doesn't get too much worse, um, you will be making your debut tomorrow in, in Alex Young's shirt at number eight. And I was stymied. I walked home through the cemetery, that means I could buy a Mars bar, and rather than get the bus home. Um, and when I got home, Parkhurst Road, Norris Green, the room, the, the road was just full of traffic. You know, you, you, we, we never saw that many cars in Parkhurst Road. There were vans there with aerials on top of them. And so it, it was quite a thing. Not so much a 16-year-old was making his debut, but a 16-year-old was making his debut for Everton and replacing on the day... Alex Young, so that that was the big um, that that was the big bubble about it. How did you deal with all that? The, the, you know the news people. I mean, did your family sort of rally round you? Well, my mum and dad were, were there, and uh, it, it sort of it flowed over me. The the whole thing was a bit of a daze, really. Anyway, um, I got on the coach the next day. First thing I did was get all their autographs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did, and uh, it was a frozen pitch. I wasn't quite like Bambi on ice, but uh, I would give myself probably five or six out of ten on the day. Brian Harris said to me he hadn't realised how good I was in the air because I, I won all the headers, and you know I, I had been as a youngster City high jump champion, um, which which people didn't really realise. I was only ever six foot, but I had a good spring in me, you know, so. And Brian said that to me afterwards, which I took very well. I was very proud of that. Mm. And then on the bus home, um, we 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 got home, woke up the next day, still in the days, and it's all over the papers. Harry Catrick has been kicked by the crowd. He was never kicked. 
Mm. He was a very shrewd man, was Harry Catrick. Mm. Everton had lost 2 0 to a, an inspired performance by a little chat with Ginger Hare, um, who wiped his nose on the corner flag in front of all the Everton fans and they instantly loved him. And Alan Ball, I'm sure that Harry Catrick made his mind up that day he was going to sign him. Mm. But there was this kerfuffle about Harry being kicked instead of reading that Everton had lost to Blackpool. And um, he was very clever that way. He was a fox. So it, it was done. It was it, it was like your, your debut's there. You've got it under your belt. I finished the season playing in the fourth team, the B team. I played one more game that season, which was um, in, in a, a cup tie. Um, sorry, bef- before a cup tie. Um, at Leeds United and uh, it was reserve side again all, all the secrecy we arrived at the ground we thought there was no reserve game that day we've all arrived in our suits we're going to see Everton play and as we arrived at the hotel in, in uh, Yorkshire uh, the first team's coming out wishing us all the best and we honestly didn't know that we were playing until we got to the hotel. Mm. And we lost. I mean, Leeds was a, were a good side. Uh, they battered us, I think 4-1 it was, something like that. Mike Treblecoat got the goal, probably got himself into the final team. And, um, you know, we, there, there were a few there that played on, played more Everton games. There were more players playing that day that didn't really play Everton games after that. Mm. So it was a real reserve side. Um See it like yesterday, and and uh, by all accounts, I mean uh, Harry Catrick had, had no fear, did he? Playing youngsters. I mean, I spoke with Colin Harvey uh, not long ago, and he talked about his debut in you know European Cup game, San Siro. Yeah, he, he just didn't. He, he seemed to not care, Harry, about who how old you were or I think you were good I, I think Harry had great faith in youth. Um, he, he was an excellent judge of a player. Um, people, you know, people have his criticism about him he wasn't press friendly mm. um, he wasn't what you would call a coach he seldom wore a tracksuit uh, usually only if John Moores was coming where he, he had this tracksuit he used to put it on over his suit so he, he wasn't uh, what they call now is on the grass but he was certainly a shrewd judge when you think he brought Howard Kendall uh, as a young man he brought um, Alan Ball as a young man mm. um, he'd already won the league in 63 um, went on to win it again in 70 the FA Cup in 66 he was probably what they would call now a director of football but a top judge of talent and, and he recognised also the change in the game when um, the game was coming round from the old W formation and he decided that ruling midfield was the way to win games and so, obviously, Kendall Ball and Harvey came together. Uh, and then the, the 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 strange thing that happened was that to get the three of us in the team up front, Johnny Morris, he was a must. Very, very underrated player, I might add, and a, and a great source of, of many of my goals. Jimmy Husband on the right was a, another young player, a flying machine, Jimmy. And I was the, the lone one through the middle in 70. Um, but Jimmy didn't like being stuck wide. So as soon as we got the ball, he'd arrive around me um, and immediately the hole that was left there, Howard Kendall would be into it and and uh, Tommy Wright would join him. So we, we had a great balance around us and, and it all came about because Harry wanted to play three in midfield and we were the first side ever to win the title playing four three three. Really? I, I, and I think um, you talked about this, the title season. I mean... 
I think notably you scored 23 goals that year. Mm. Um, how good a side was that when you compare the great Everton sides you've seen down the years? How good were they? Um, with with bias, I would say that I don't I don't see I've never seen an Everton side since that would beat us on our day. Mm. And the the real tragedy was that it didn't go on for whatever reason. Mm. We were good enough with Colin, Tommy Wright, young John Hurst, young Jimmy Husband, young Joe Royal, with a with a blend of experience of, of Johnny Morrissey, Brian LeBone, um, at some stage. Uh, Ramon Wilson, you know, and, and and Brian LeBone, of course, and Gordon West. We 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 had a, everything. We had pace. We had size. Everyone in the team could handle the ball, and it just never went on. It's funny. Colin was bereft of ideas as why it didn't go on. I mean, he. I mean, was it was it the departure of Harry? Do you think was it? You know, uh, it, it's it's hard to know what what Harry's thinking of when. He decided that Alan Ball's time was up, and uh, mm. no one was more surprised. We always saw Bally as Harry's blue-eyed boy, and rightly so. By the way, he's still—if you ask anybody still alive from that side—they would tell you that Alan Ball was the best player they played with. Mm. You know, when you think of it, I think he was man of the match in a World Cup final at twenty twenty-one. Yeah. So you know, the, the the pedigree was there, and, and I remember, like yesterday, Alan Ball coming out through the. Canteen with with tears in his eyes. He said, "I'm going. You know, where where are you going?" He he said, "I'm he's selling me." And we were absolutely shocked. And I think that he probably gave up on us a little bit too soon, or he he didn't mind making big decisions. Harry, you know, I'll say again, very underrated as a Could manager. Could be financial pressure at the time. Was there? Was I that don't. An I don't think so. No. I don't think so. No. You know, don't forget we were we were not long. Uh, it was only a season before. Or, or two seasons before that we'd won the league mm. um, Mersey Millionaires then well we were the Merseyside Millionaires with, with the backing of John Moores you know the um, Mr Littlewoods Mr Moores and everything seemed set fair we, we, we'd had a, an ordinary season after winning the league but it, we all thought that Borley was, was, was the main man for Harry and there he was selling him so it, I think Evan went through a rather strange Era after that, mm. you know, when Ball, post Alan Ball, it was hard to replace what we'd all seen two years earlier, 69, 70, particularly maybe 68, 69. The brand of football, attacking football, the pace in the team was there for all to see. And I've had the same arguments with, with, with Howard, God love him when he was alive, and, and Colin, or, or um, disputes with him as to which was the best evidence side they see. Mm. You ask me, I would say ours. Uh, and uh, you know, when you look at it, you know, after that, as you say, that the seventies was d- looking at comparing to the uh, the start of the decade, it was a, a horrendous decade, wasn't it? Really, for Everton, they they never really challenged anything. I mean, there was a little bit in sort of seventy seven, seventy eight, possibly with the League Cup final and things like that, but it never really came to anywhere near that level no, they, again, did they? Uh, Alan, second? you're right. It was a grey decade. Mm. You know, it was a grey decade. Um, at one stage, I think with with Bingham in charge, they they had a chance of winning the league. I know I I'd left um, Christmas Eve 1974 to go to Manchester City, and soon after that, I think it was round about 74 to 76, uh, 
Everton had a great chance of winning the yeah. league. There was, I think, it was twenty-two. Although I might, be, I might be getting mixed up, might be Gordon Lee, but certainly there was a a, game, a season when they went twenty-two games unbeaten, and yeah. you know, up to Christmas, I think, got beat by by Manchester United heavily on the six-two. I think on the Boxing Day, but 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 certainly there were promises. I mean, we speak to Bob Latchford on on the occasion, and he always says he felt they were one or two. Uh, Dave Thomas, we spoke to just recently, you know, and he said yeah. there were one or two players away from, but but I think there was a. Different level wasn't there for that from that sixty nine seventy team. Yeah, I mean, with all due respect, even the people that you you meet now and I still meet Evertonians at numerous Everton do's, and they still talk about the the sixty nine seventy mm. side and that season, and they all ask the same question: Why didn't it go on? Yeah. Well, and we're going to go on. Um, as far as you know, and it, we've got so much to talk about, Joe. So we'll have to sort of move it on a little bit. But as far as leaving Everton, how did that come about for you? Which time? The first time. <laughs> I've left three times. Um, very sad, but had like to be myself. done. Had, had to be done. I, I'd, I'd had back surgery in November 72. Took me a long time to get over it. Um, best part of 12, 14 months, really. And then in the meantime, Harry had gone. Billy Bingham had arrived, brought in Bob Latchford. I can fully understand that. It, t- it took me a long time to get going. We started the season together. It seemed to be going quite well. I think Bob had um, maybe four or five goals and I had a couple. And um, I think it was Coventry away. He he put me to one side and said, um, I'm going to play... Um, I'm, I'm going to play someone different today. I'm going to leave you out the side. And, uh, you know, there you go. He said, Jim Pearson's here. I've got to give him a game. And, and that was it, really. I only played one game after that. Um, I was still getting my fitness back. And uh, Christmas Eve 74, Billy had been desperate, absolutely desperate to sell me to Birmingham City. You know, he got um, Howard to go there, Archie Styles, mm-hmm. Gary Jones... I don't know what the appeal was of Birmingham City. Or <laughs> we can <Adele>. only guess. <laughs> yeah. But um, any, anyhow, I wouldn't go there. I knew that Man United and Man City wanted yeah. me. I think Tony Book came for you, didn't he? Tony Book did. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd uh, Obviously, I'd played against Tony, who'd been a top fullback, to say the least. He was he was ruthless, he was quick, but he, he was a top player. And uh, Christmas Eve 1974, I left very sadly. Mm-hmm. But it had to be done, you know. I couldn't. I was. I still had uh, England in my in my mind. I wanted to play for England again, and um, I wasn't going to do that playing in Evan reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, uh, you obviously you, you you went on playing. I think you play for City. You play for Bristol City. You play for Norwich. Um, but the, when the sort of time came to sort of hang up the boots, did you did you automatically think? I'm going to be a manager, I want to be a coach? No, it's it's funny how time gets to you, really. I, I joined um, Norwich as a 30-year-old. Um, in my first full season there, I, I won Player of the Year, which I'm still very proud of. It's the only one I ever won. Um, we, Despite being a striker in a relegated team, I think I got 10 goals and Player of the Year. Second season, I hardly played. I had a bad knee injury. And I'd started doing a little bit of... Whilst I was uh, recuperating from knee surgery, I started doing a little bit of coaching with the community side, with the kids. Nothing too strenuous. And then I I was sent down to London, to Harley Street, to see a specialist. Came back with the message, uh, 
you knew will never be strong enough for first-class football. And then all of a sudden there I was, uh, 32 years old. Um, Everton had bought me out of Quarry Bank, so I'd, I'd been to a, a top-class school, one of the top schools in the country for GCEs at the time, with, and uh, came out without even taking an exam, never mind passing one. So I'd, I'd had a good education, but it, it was sort of... It wasn't wasted, I mean, because I joined Everton and played. But um, you start thinking about things. I had a, mm. a wife, three kids, a Labrador, a car on HP, a mortgage. And, you know, I hadn't earned the money that they're earning today. Mm. So um, I, I decided I'd, I'd try and ring around a few places. I sent letters to Peterborough, to Bristol City, where I had an interview, I think to Blackpool at the time. And then uh, I'd also sent one to Oldham Athletic because um, I'd realised I'd, I'd been on tour at the end of the season with Norwich. They'd taken me away as a farewell gesture. They'd, they'd been promoted straight back up. And um, I'm lying around the pool with Mickey Maguire, my great friend Mickey, um, Martin O'Neill, who was, who was with us, you know, top players there and certainly going to be top internationals as well. And uh, we were passing around a two or three day old Daily Mirror and the, the headline on the back was um, uh, Oldham Athletic sack Jimmy Frizzle, you know. And a great quote by the the chairman there, Harry Wilde, who said, uh, Jimmy Frizzle has worked miracles for this club, but we're now looking for something different. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> When no I get, pressure there then. <laughs> so when I got home, I wrote away. I'd forgotten about it. had been in the papers that John Weil had the job at uh, Oldham Athletic. Uh, they were looking for it. I'd explained I was unlikely to play and they wanted a player manager. And it was about five weeks after I'd sent, I'd, I sent my, my letter in, hadn't heard a thing. I got a phone call about eight o'clock in the morning, Harry Weil, the Oldham chairman, we'd like to come over and interview today. So I went over. Straight away, um, slept at my mother's in Magull the night um, and got another message, another phone call, come back and see us. You know, there's a couple more directors you didn't see yesterday. Um, famously got near Boundary Park. My car blew up, the engine blew up. Um, I, th- I thumbed a lift off a wagon. I arrived uh, outside <laughs> Boundary Park in a wagon in a haulage van and... Um, <laughs> And they said, come in, Mr. Royal, you know, we're going to offer you the job. Um, you've never managed before. We're taking a big chance on you. We're going to give you one five fifteen thousand pounds a year. Um, you'll have to find your own house. You'll, you'll have to use your own car because we're skint. And by the way, you've got to sell someone quickly. So that was my mandate, £15,000 a year and sell someone quickly. Uh, and but but I guess you know I mean as a, as a learning curve as a as a sort of grounding for a new coach and a new manager yeah you, you couldn't really be in a better place in some respects Alan it, it was a lovely twelve years you know I still have uh, two sons living in in the greater Oldham area uh, we still get back regularly we generally spend Christmas there um, it's it was a great twelve years and it was. I, I learnt everything, you know. I, I did everything. At one stage, I was painting the physio's room. Um, we had no equipment at all. Um, the 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 physiotherapist at uh, Norwich was a Tim Tim Shepherd, who was a Bolton man, and he was always telling me about this friend of his who had uh, gym equipment. So I drove over to Bolton, 
came back with some gym equipment. Uh, I did the lot. I was out five nights a week. I probably lost three or four years of my my kids' youth because I was never there. Mm. I was watching even Sunday games. Um, myself and Billy Ermson, and then as things got slightly better, I brought Willie Donachey in as my number two. You know, and I met Willie. Um, first met him when he, he went over the top to me playing against Manchester City, which yeah. I, I constantly remind him about. <laughs> but then again, we became inseparable, really, yeah. at yeah. Um, Manchester City as players and then as manager and coach. And, and you talk about that great 12 years, and, and I think you know it would be wrong not to mention incredibly successful as well. And, and also... <coughs> Success, which probably Oldham had never seen before and probably won't ever see again. It, it, it made it very hard. You know, my first gate as a manager, we played Shrewsbury at home and won 1-0, 2,900 people. Mm. And then in the halcyon days of the cup runs uh, and the Premier League, people forget that Oldham were founding members of the Premier League. Yeah. We were getting as high as 18,000 for the big games. Cup runs... Two semi-finals, uh, three semi-finals if you count replays, uh, transfer profits every year, and still improve the side. You know, they, um, they, we had phenomenal times. There. How reward? I mean, how rewarding was that? Just just listening to you say that, you know, and and to look at the contrast from from the times when you're painting the physios' walls, and and the next minute you you're in the Premier League and you and you're going to cup finals. I mean. How rewarding is that for? Because because I think this is the sort of thing which I don't think many people talk about in the game, or we see certainly these days, we don't talk about those things, do we? The, the, you know those real raw pleasures. Well, also fairy tales. You know, the mm. Wimbledon had their own fairy tale with yeah. all those years in the Premier League, but there we were, little Oldham. You know, and we were pinching fans. You know, the, the, we, we were like a bit of a wart on the outside of Manchester, yeah. but we were pinching fans off City, some off United. Usually, those who couldn't get a season ticket. Yeah. Even Leeds fans were coming towards us. So the the, the fan base grew and grew. And I came in one morning and, and uh, I always tried to be first there and it's eight o'clock and there were three queues outside the ground, one for the next league game, one for the next league cup game and one for the next FA Cup game. And it was just heady times, halcyon times. I always said the energy around Oldham, around Sheepfoot Lane, Boundary Park at that time, you could have lit up Blackpool, it was buzzing. And uh, the Joe Roll stand, stands there now as testament, I guess. It does, and uh, I'm very proud of it. I've already had my grandchildren there to see it. I've got four grandchildren in Oldham, um, and they have. And, and it's nice, the, the owner's having a hard time there, you know, with, with both finance and the team. But um, bless him, he, he decided to name the stand after me. I'm very proud of that. Uh, of course, that success led Peter Johnson to to come knocking, and and I remember the time I was a BBC Radio Merseyside local reporter, and I was getting on everybody's case at the time. I was really annoying Peter Johnson, uh, as you do, um, and I remember being at Goodison that day when you walk through those doors in that lounge, and you, yeah. you you were announced as the next Everton manager after Mike Walker had left, and. Uh, and uh, I still remember it to this day, the the beaming smile on your face. It must have meant, I think the quote was that you'd have walked down the East Lanks 
to to get there, you know. And I I I, I seem to remember that. Well, I said that to Cliff Finch when he rang me up. You know, he'd already had permission from the Oldham chairman who, who knew that I, there was no way I'd say no to it. Mm. And I personally thought my chance of the Evans job had gone when Mike Walker got the job mm. um, and looked like they were going away from ex Evan people, like Colin had had the job, um, Howard had obviously had the job, Harry Catrick was ex Everton. So if you go back through the history, you know, they've always had an Everton connection. And when they gave it to Mike Walker, I thought, well, that's it, you know. And I, I turned down Manchester City as well during the Halcyon days, um, uh, and for no other reason than things were going so well at Oldham, and I didn't want them to be disappointed if there was no conclusion to it. I didn't want to leave, and then everyone turns around and say, "Oh, we never did it in the end because you know Joe Royal left us, you know, just left us kind of thing." So it was more about an Oldham thing than a Manchester City thing mm. when I said no. And then I got the phone call from Cliff, and I did say that, uh, and I was, I, I drove over to to Goodison, saw a lot of cars outside. I thought that's strange. Um, and then I walked in um, and talked about camera lights roll and hadn't even discussed the contract. I thought I was there to discuss terms. And Peter Johnson announced me as Evans' next manager. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was about six weeks before I had a contract. Really? We still, you know, Peter kept saying, uh, I said, Chairman, we've got to talk about a contract. He said, Joe, but you're earning quite well at Oldham, so I think we'll stick on that. I said, I think we won't. <laughs> there is a slight difference. Yeah. <clears throat> I must say, I was going very well with Peter and still yeah. do, and yeah. we still shake our heads. Yes. Yeah, is it, well, we'll come to that. Um, but, you know, when when you look at that day, I mean, it was you're coming into a club which had possibly dropped as low as it could drop. Um, Eight points from a third of the season. It was a 42-game season, uh, and it was a, a strange year for some reason or other. Four clubs were going down. Everyone bottom of the table with eight points from a third of the season. You don't have to be a mathematician to see they were on schedule for 24 points. Mm. Uh, I just said yes. As I say, I walked into the AGM there, mm. and my Uncle Norman's there, and he probably knew before me that I was getting the job. Yeah. Um, but um, the, the, I hadn't realised how bad things were. I knew it was bad, and I used to see Evan at the bottom of the table. Mm. But what I didn't know is the first three games were going to be Liverpool at home, uh, Chelsea away, and then Leeds at home. That's home. three of the top five. Mm. You know, and there we were. I think they'd had one win in 14 games. So uh, I looked at it then and I thought, my word, you know, we've we're taken something on here, Joe. <laughs> um, but I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed. Even had I known, it wouldn't have stopped me going. And out of those three games, I mean, what a way to start. You know, I, I, I particularly <coughs> remember the Leeds game because I was at it yeah. as a fan. And, 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 you know, I think Duncan Rose from an Andy Hinchcliffe corner and, you know, powered a header in. And, and the feeling of Goodison, that, because when Goodison comes alive, as you'll know many times, you know, it comes alive, doesn't it? And, and it's very difficult to stop. Well, it, it's not quite like the Russian winter, but I've been at Goodison when there's been steam coming off the place and it's freezing cold. Mm. And all of a sudden, the referee is—he seems to be on your side. It, he's not, I know, but Goodison Knights. I mean, that I, I have so mixed feelings about Goodison. We've got to move. We know that we've got to go away from the place. But it'll be a sad day 
when when it actually happens. It'll be a great day as well, mm. Mm. but um, it was one of those nights. It, it was a, a Goodison night, and uh, we'd worked hard. We we had we had a, a while to work on it because it was an international break. Um, I'd seen my first game in charge was actually at Anfield, mm. a reserve game, and Andy Hinscliffe played. I thought, well, he's playing. I uh, saw Joe Parkinson for the first time. Oh, well, he's playing, you know. Mm. Um, and I'd, I'd looked at the the videos or the VHS as they were then of the, the 14 games. I gave Willie seven, I had seven, and we both came in the next day and said soft touch. So John Eberl, Barry Horn, Joe Parkinson became became the... The head barkers and the soon-to-be dogs of war. Dogs of war, yeah. <laughs> and and it, whilst we all look back affectionately on the dogs of war, it's a little bit misleading, isn't it, to how how good the side was to become, you know, over the next few years. But but at that time, was that what was needed? Was that did you think, you know, listen, we have to just well, it, tighten uh, up here. We have to every, stop. Everyone losing. was telling me I went there. You know, Neville's gone. Mm. Dave Watson's legs have gone. You know, we we can't have this. And and I looked at you know with with all due respect to the players you know Gary Rao was an outside right and you know he wasn't probably quite ready for for being in Evans team at that stage you know, Paul Holmes at fullback um, Graeme Stewart was playing in midfield and and I, I just looked at it and I thought my god you know the, it's not the back four are finished it's that they're just getting no protection and Joe Parkinson who would have played for England but for for dodgy knees you know Venables has already been on about him Mm. And he was that m- marvellous blend of almost a centre-half, but not quite, um, but good enough on the ball and quick enough. He was deceptively quick over short short, uh, short paces, Joe, and and he would, would have played for England, believe me, and he was awesome, Joe. Barry Horn had some of the best days of his career. That's from Barry, you know, he loved it. And we worked on pressing and closing and pressing and closing, and Barry Horn and John Ebra were ready-made for that, you know. So all of a sudden, from being a soft touch, we became not nice to play against. The the Dogs of War came, came about because I was being interviewed consistently and asked when Vinnie Samways was going to be in the team. And listen, I had no, no problem with Vinnie Samways, but we were doing well as we were. Mm. You know, and I said, we're doing quite well, you know, we, we've... We, I know you keep talking to me about the school of science, I said, but at the moment, with this sort of dogs of war mentality, is working for us. Well, talk about making a mistake, of course. We were the dogs of war from then on. Yeah. There were T-shirts, um, dogs of wars at Wembley and all of that. It, it, I didn't mind it. The players loved it. Um, but in the end, it was used as a weapon against me by our local press and also... You know, they, I, I think, think it undersold the players. I mean, Barry Horn was an international. John Eberl had been an international schoolboy under 23. And, and as I say, Joe would have played for England. They were all top players, believe me, yeah. and all top guys. You know, what, that's what I did inherit the great personalities. Neville was strong. Um, Dave Watson was the driest man on the planet. You know, was so funny in the dressing room. Gary Ablett, God love him. What a defender he was, you know. So we, Matt Jackson, in, initially he played right back in the side, having been a centre back, and and all of a sudden we became hard to beat. Mm. And and going on from that, not just hard to beat, but trophy winners as well. And I mean, <coughs> the, the cup run will will 
Did you feel? I mean, because I think you, I think we beat Bristol City, didn't we? Away, it was a tough game. If I remember, that was right. our hardest game. Yeah, Bristol City. We were lucky. On the day we we'd had uh, a bad attack of Montez, Montezuma's revenge in the um, squad, <laughs> otherwise known as the Wild Shots, <laughs> <laughs> and a few of the players were suffering with it, you know. And uh, we weren't good on the day, and they had a little outside right who kept running clear and missing the goal or Neville was saving them and then all of a sudden Matt Jackson pops up on the edge of the box using his left foot which was a swinger mm. and he's half volleyed a great goal and we've won 1-0 and I do remember saying afterwards I hope we've not used up all our luck mm. in one game mm. um, but we didn't did you feel quite rightly? Did you feel that you were going to go all the way at, at that point? Or I mean, our, I mean, our board meeting after our, our first cup tie in the cup run, I think it was just after or just before, and um, I think one of the board, it was probably Bill, said, um, "Go on, then. What's our chances of a cup run?" And I said, "Have a bet on us. Have a bet on us because we're playing cup football." And Bill did have a best, and he's never told me to this day how much he was. Mm. But I know he's not a small punter. <laughs> um, as far as I'm going to fast forward along, you know, uh, to I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. No, no, yeah. no. I'm going to fast yeah. forward along to the to the, to the semi final. Um, that was where does that stand in, in your days? In well, football? we we turned up at Ellen Road, and it, it was blue everywhere. Uh, and somehow or other, we we contrived to have three sides of the ground, um, and it, it it became like a home game for us. And and I've got to say that you know we ended up winning four one. The one goal was the only goal we conceded in the cup run, by the way. Mm. But also on top of that, if ever you needed a reason why we weren't just dogs of war, that performance was one of the best post-war performances by an Everton side that you've seen mm. in a big game. Against the big opposition. Against big opposition, against Klinsman um, and company, you know, who were going to beat Barmby us. Sheringham, Barmby. Um, they, you know, they were Great so, well. so long odds on to beat us. You know, we were we were there to to lose to Tottenham so that Tottenham and Man United could have the, the favourite. I think they called know, it the dream final. The dream they? final, yeah. you know, because yeah. I, as you remember, I came in the press room afterwards and told them where they could put their dream final. I do. <laughs> but one of my moments of that day was, and you know, we didn't, we knew each other because of my work at Radio Merseyside, but yeah. not in the way we do now. And I remember being upstairs, and I think Jack Charlton was actually on one of the lounges mm-hmm. doing where I was as a fan, yeah. you know, and he was doing a speech and everything. And I went, we went to the toilet just outside, and just as we went in the toilet, this is after the game, there's you and Willie Donicky in the toilet. Yeah. And you were both like, if I don't mind me saying, like two school kids giggling away. Yeah. And I don't think you, I don't think I've ever seen a more happier couple of people, you know. And you you were saying, you know, you were joking about saying we're gonna have to get serious, you know, because you were going down to do the press. <laughs> but it was just it was that fantastic feeling, wasn't it, that we'd you know, almost sort of what's the word I'm looking for, you know, Surprised everybody, you know. It, it did, you know. Except but, us, I guess. No, we weren't surprised, you know. I, I mean, having we actually got to fifty points. Having, you know, we we ended up with eight points over a point a game. Having been, you know, way behind, we were on schedule for twenty-four points. So then it, it was we we switched off completely. You know, we we did very little until the the Thursday before the cup final, and. um 
it was more head in tennis and that. And then we got a little bit serious. We did a bit of shape. And then still, one of the hardest things I've, I've ever had to do is tell John Eberl that he wasn't going to be playing. And, and not only that, I couldn't find a place for him on the bench because John had been integral to the revival. Um, but unfortunately for him, he'd, he'd missed the semi-final. He was suspended. And I decided to go with the semi-final team, which which had done so well and played so well and, and I thought I, we've got to keep that there was a great balance about it and um, I still apologise to John when I see him now he knows that and, and John being John he's, he's, he's way over it and, and all of that but he's a lovely guy so um, it, it was it, it was a great feeling afterwards you know and it was a great feeling after the the, the Wembley final but the last thing I'd said to them is, listen, lads, we've come an awful long way. We might as well win it. And it was quite that simple. They didn't need motivating. They were good pros. You know, you start at the back with the big wall, Russ and goal. <clears throat> and, um, and then Waggy and company right the way through. Underrated people, Paul Rideout, so underrated. Graham Stewart... I actually admitted, I think, after the semi-final that I'd always thought he was a, a jack-of-all-trades and, and not a master of none, but certainly a utility player, and he wasn't. He was far better than that. And he never believes me. Terry Venables had asked about him for England as well. Paul Rideout had been a schoolboy wonder and then sort of not never written off at a club, but always wanted more from him. He was smashing, you know. We had a nice problem when Duncan was fit. He was so big, strong, and uh, he, he was a power that had to play. But Rideout and Stewart were a better pair, as a pair. I mean, Duncan could play as in, on his own. When you think of those three strikers that we had then, my God, the, the riches that I had to deal with, mm. you know, it, it was great. And that sort of, um, you know, the, the build-up to the final, because, of course, you will have had, at Oldham, some experience of, of building up to cup finals yeah. and you know and that sort of thing. I sounds mean, funny. That, it sounds it? weird, doesn't it? But but you but you will have done. Did that help you in the build up? And how was the build up? Now what what helped me most in the, in the build up was, um, is is the fact that we'd got there, and I was relieved after that game at Ipswich when Paul Rideout scored the goal that meant we were going to survive definitely. The whole place that you you could you could feel the pressure, hear the pressure coming out of the place. So we switched off a little bit. The last game of the season at Coventry was abysmal. It was a complete break from football. But I didn't really want to be there. I I just wanted that that out of it. And let's prepare for the final. Um, it it was it was a strange feeling in in many ways. You know, once when there'd been so much pressure on us for so long. And even with three or four games to go, despite our run of form, we could still technically have gone down. Mm. And it was the season the four went down, mm. you know. So we were looking over our shoulder, but we the, the pressure came out the place at Ipswich. And and the um, I mean, building up to that final, I guess you know a couple of things. One is you had a few sort of injury problems. You had a few issues, as you, you mentioned, John Eberl. I mean, how big a decision was it with the team? And 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 because I think did Duncan started on the bench. I think didn't he? And, Duncan yeah, started. He he, he hadn't been fit. That's right. Hammer would come on a yeah. sub, yeah. so he had to have his day. You know, he, yeah. if I'm going to say that I'm going to go with the cup final team, 
uh, the, the, the semi-final team, sorry. Well, I've got to go so look at the bench and say Daniel with his contribution and, and everybody knows the, the story about him substituting himself, yeah. the best substitution I never made. Yeah. And I spoke uh, to Jimmy Martin Lee, uh, not long ago and he said, you're still blaming for that. And he said, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just turned around and Daniel had gone. You know, he's, he, he was yeah. determined to have his day in the sun. Yeah. And then, of course, we had to have a, a goalkeeper on. It was only three subs. And poor old Johnny Ebbs, bless him, who'd played this big part in the in the whole season, and fate had, had given him a, a major blow. But um, I meant to say before, you know, the the one thing that they always had, and I've always put a big value on it, and I say this to Unzi often, you know, that he smiles now. You can't underestimate, never underestimate the value of a smile in a football club. Mm. You show me a miserable team. And I'll show you a miserable dressing room. Mm. They, they, they were great together. You know, they, there was all kinds of nonsense going on at Belfield. You know, people were coming in and finding shoes missing and, and all that stuff. It wasn't quite cra- quite a crazy gang, but there was always a smile about the place. And that, that helped us immensely. I, and um, I spoke to Anders Limpar lately, as you know, and, and he, he said, we really believed... You know, he said, we really believed that we could win that day. You know, there was no doubt about it. Oh, we'd beaten United in the run. You know, we'd beaten United at Goodison Park. You know, the famous one when Duncan scores, tears his shirt off and then runs away. You know, and uh, we beat United. So, I mean, we we were the only side to beat United twice that season. Mm. Um, Alex, rather... How could he put it? Rather harshly said in one of his books that it was a, a poor final played by two ordinary teams. <laughs> Alex, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know, we, we had... Anders Limpar had a terrific 40, 45, 50 minutes there, you know, he, and he ran the ball of people. And Anders, and listen, if Kanchelskis is the best, most... Uh, the, the best, most dynamic player that I've managed. Uh, certainly, Anders would be the most talented. Mm. Uh, it, it could be a talent that was uh, not always consistent, but Anders could do things. You know, you ask the Arsenal players. Uh, you know, I remember Lee Dixon telling me <clears throat> Anders won us the the double. You know, Anders won us the team, won us the league, and. Um, Anders was a great talent, so we weren't short of talent. Annie Hinchcliffe, a left foot to die for, you know, and this great service wasn't being used. And Duncan, who can jump higher than the bar, so make no, I make no apologies whatsoever for our set ball, set play. Um, what would you call it? Uh, expertise. Strategy. Expertise. Um, well, yeah. do, do, how did you manage the game? Because it, I know I was sat up as a fan up in the Olympic Gallery, sat next to the late Gordon Banks, would you believe? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just couldn't look, you know, I was, but that, that was being an Evertonian, I guess, you know. But, but how did you manage the game? Because they, you know, they put a lot of pressure on us at times, didn't they, Manchester United? Well, they, they did, but, but equally sometimes these things have faced it. I, I never thought for one minute. Once the goal went in, we got a lot of clean sheets. You know, we 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 defended very well, and uh, we doubled up on the left side with Ablis and Hinchcliffe playing together. There it was like two defensive, although Andy was playing ostensibly as a left-sided midfielder, Anders on the right, and um, you know, I, I never doubted that we were going to win. 
And, and the message at half time, do you remember that? Do you remember talking to them at half time? Not really. I'd, I'd be making it up. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but obviously, with the saves as well, were, you know, from Neville, from Paul Scholes in particular, you know, I mean, you know, he played his part as well, didn't he? Of course he did. And Neville played a big part in it, by the way. He played a big everything, Neville, because he is a big guy. But um, he, he, Neville was. There's no doubt that in 1985, stroke 87, Neville was the best goalkeeper in the business, possibly, probably in the world even. You know, he was that good. But the, the shall we say, the, the older, more mature Neville of 95 knew what to do and where to be. He was, he was the master of the art of goalkeeping, if not the agility of goalkeeping at that stage. So he knew where to be, where the ball would hit him. He wouldn't have to dive sometimes, and, and, and that was one of those occasions. You, you talk about the save from, from Scholes. The, the big fella he was, and if he'd wanted to, he probably would have been a top goalkeeping coach, but he didn't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as uh, after the game, um, you know, we all saw that joy on your face when the final whistle went, and you know, you could relax then, I guess, and, and, and enjoy it. I know I was relaxed all the time. Believe me, as soon as that Ipswich game was over, I was relaxed. I'd come, I'd come without looking at Evans' record, but when I looked at him, I thought the last thing I want is to have my name down as the manager who took Everton down, and. Uh, I know that there would have been certain sympathies that, you know, I'd inherited a crock at the time, which it was a crock. But equally, um, I didn't want that on my CV, particularly having been an Everton player and an Everton fan. You know, I'd, I'd stood on the paddock under the clock mm. and I'd seen Alex Young make his debut and, and all of that. And I'd seen Alan Ball score against Liverpool in a cup tie. And so they, it was the whole Everton thing. I I didn't want that on my CV that I'd been Evans' manager when they were relegated. Mm. Once that ball went in at Ipswich, that was it. Cool. That was it. Uh, but what would it feel like to to be the Everton manager who lifted the FA Cup and, and seen that trophy, a, a tradition which was you know quite deep in Everton's tradition? Well, it it was fantastic, and and we all felt at the time that there was more to come, you know, and and there probably should have been. Um, I'm still very proud of being the last Everton manager to lift the trophy. It's a record I'm, I will only give up as soon as possible, please. But whilst it's still there, I'm, I'm very proud of it all. And what, what was the what was the aftermath like? Of the, of there was that? a great show afterwards. I've got to say that uh, Peter Johnson and Cliff had organised a fantastic show. A marching band brought the um, but brought the cup in. I think it was. Might have been Bobby Davro, who was one of the comedians, um, and it was just a great night. Anders, who didn't drink, got absolutely plastered. He was in such a tangle at the end, and I've got a photo of Duncan in a kilt, dancing on a on a table in the far corner, um, just in case I ever need money. And um, <laughs> um, now the big fella, the big fella was immense because. He'd come down from Rangers with, with uh, I think it was Durant. Ian Durant, yeah. Ian Durant. And uh, it was actually Peter Johnson and, and Cliff Finch who brought them down. It wasn't a managerial thing. They'd wanted Duncan out of the place, you know, out mm-hmm. of Glasgow at the mm-hmm. time for the for the incoming um, trial that was going to happen. And I think Duncan soon discovered the the flesh pots of Liverpool, the nicer 
nicer places to go as a young man. Um, and he hadn't scored a goal and then goes and scores his first goal for the club uh, against Liverpool in a derby game when we won a game 2-0 that nobody gave us a hope in hell. Mm. And the legend was born that night and uh, he was talismanic. He was talismanic. He wasn't always a great team player, but he could do things. He was he was very, very quick. Yeah, say he normally when they're that big six five they can't jump. You know, they're not great jumpers. Peter Crouch was good in the air but not a great jumper. Niall Quinn was a good footballer in six foot five. None of those two could jump like Duncan. Yeah, he, uh, he could handle the ball and uh and, and he certainly was never frightened. No. He hung in the air though as well. He, he could he, he did. He he, he, he he could hang in the air. He scored. Mm-hmm. I think if you can find it on um YouTube, if I can say that, there's a goal of him somewhere scoring a, a ginormous header against Crystal Palace. Yeah, I remember that, and yeah. um, and I, listen, I, I remember. I'm still, hopefully, still got my marbles and 17 now, but I still remember things. And uh, I remember the smile. I can remember him running free, knocking somebody out the way in in, in a cup tie at, at Goodison, and how poor the pitch is that day. And he smashes it through the goalkeeper. He ran clear from the halfway line, um, and he was. I say again, I'll use the word talismanic. He was. He led us. He led us, mm. and that's why, even though he was probably only half fit, he had to be on the bench at Wembley. Yeah, and I remember. I remember. You know, when he came on, and he sort of couldn't really run around. At one point, could he? You know, he were... could have scored two goals. Yeah, he could have. Done, he had yeah. a, a breakaway. Had, didn't yeah, we? yeah, we were on yeah. the break. We and and by the way, he'd already. Put his mark down on um, Bruce and Pallister. They did not like playing against Duncan. In fact, Duncan was a great... He, he was such a, a great big game player. You know, sometimes... I wouldn't say he was ineffective against Wimbledon and Coventry and that. But I tell you what, against Man United, Liverpool, he was up for it, Arsenal, all the big games. And he used to get himself so... The, 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 big, the most... Uh, how can I put it? It wasn't agitated, motivated. I've seen him. Was when we played Newcastle first game of the season, and um, Newcastle had signed Ferdinand and Shearer, and of course the papers were full of it. I said, "Oh, fancy this, Duncan Shearer, <laughs> Shearer, Ferdinand, what?" <laughs> and he was, <laughs> he was, he was a double, double handful. We beat them, of course. Yeah. Um, as far as that, and do you remember the drive home on the? Did was it on the coach? Was it on the train? I can't remember now. But you had the trophy in the front, I guess, and all that sort of stuff. The fans. Yeah, I mean, listen, I've got to say, I can't remember an awful lot of that. I wasn't amazingly drunk or anything like that. I was sat on the bus. It, that, that's for the players. I'm never been one for up front and waving things around. That was for the players. They they'd achieved a fantastic recovery. You know the the recovery in the league. The the FA Cup was great for the fans. And I would say that that's for the fans. But to me, the highlight of the season was coming back from Ipswich, and we hadn't played well. By the way, we fluked it, and Paul Rideout deservedly got a goal for all his efforts that year. Very underrated. Mm. Um, okay, so just to finish on, I mean, can you imagine? Could you imagine then that you were twenty-five years later on, you were still going to be the last manager of Everton to lift a trophy? <laughs> no, because I thought we'd win the league the next year. <laughs> we finished sixth in the end. You um, just missed out on. 
We'd missed out Europe, on Europe again, yeah. It was Arsenal, wasn't it? And we played Aston Villa last game. And That's right. I think they won and, and we won 2-1, I think, if I remember rightly. We did. It was a bobbly goal from Joe Parkinson mm. from memory. Yeah. Um, and But I honestly thought that we were we were very, very close to it. And then again, the following season, around Christmas, we won a very poor game at Derby County. Mm. And mm-hmm. I remember Andy Gray saying, listen, this is a hard side to beat. Don't rule them out of the the um, the Premier League race, and and we were at that stage. We were very close. Mm. But tw- I mean, twenty five years, you know, since since a trophy, it's it's incredible, really, isn't it? To think, you know, that when you think for, about a, that for time. a club of Evans stature, yeah. when you think of the the halcyon days under Howard, when the the trophy seemed to be two a season at one stage, you know, and. Uh, by the way, we we also won the charity shield. You know, we we beat Blackburn Rovers, yeah. um, who were a top side. You know, they'd won the league, and and so that's a trophy to win as well. Mm. It doesn't. It's a it's a one game trophy, but it's a nice one. Was that was that the highlight of? It must be the highlight of your Everton career, lifting the FA Cup. I guess as no. a manager. No, the the highlight of my career was managing Everton to survival. Mm. It was honestly. I, don't, I mean that highlight performance was the semi final. The, the, the FA Cup final is nice, but uh, and and it's great to have on your CV. But the performance in the semi final and the actual achievements of being Everton's manager when they stayed up from a somewhat impossible position. Wow! Um, and moving on to that next season, you brought in the likes of Barmby, you brought in the likes of Kanchelskis, you brought in the likes of Gary Speed. And as I was saying before, people were talking about the sides, the Joe Royal sides, but that was a classy team, wasn't it, that you had assembled? <clears throat> Some of the performances that year, you know, when we took Sheffield Wednesday apart uh, at Sheffield, you know, with, with a, a front line, I think, of Kanchelskis, Branch and Amakachi. Mm. Uh, I don't think you've ever seen a faster front three. Um, Southampton. Southampton, Gary Speed, God love him. You know, and and I thought that this is a side now are going to be serious challenges, and I still believe they would have been, but for injuries, we just had too many injuries in the wrong places. And what you know, when you assemble that side, who who were the players? I mean, Andre, does you mentioned it before? Is he is he the best player you ever bought? Do you think? Or? Yeah, <clears throat> he he would be because he was. Don't forget, I think he got sixteen goals um, without free kicks and corners or penalties or, or anything like that. Andre was just a nightmare. One particular game, I'd gone over to see Russia play in Ireland, and they had a fullback, a Blackburn fullback, who was who was playing for Ireland, and Andre tore him. Was that tore yeah, be yeah, I think yeah. it was, mm. and he went inside, outside, over him, through him, everywhere, and then we played Blackburn on the Saturday, and I was watching him watch Andre run out and line up, and and you could read his mouth what he was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! But, but, but <laughs> I mean, he was an incredible talent, wasn't he, Andre? He was. Was he, was he difficult to manage? Was he? Was he? No, no. Because um, often, often these. Sort of great players are, aren't they? No, he he never ever spoke terrific English. Uh, mm. I, I do see him now occasionally, and it, it hasn't changed. And he, his interpreter or his linguist with him, George Scanlon, George, yeah. um, God bless him. He's he's passed away in the last couple of years. 
but um, Andre was never ever any trouble. The, the trouble he had in his second full season, having done so well the first season, he was having one or two um, problems at home. He was having a an ankle that was persistently giving him problems, um, and with the club coming under pressure because of our, our form at the time, um, our injuries. Andre was it was a big one, and. We we let him go in the end when we probably should have sent him away for a couple of weeks. Go and get some sun on your back, take your wife away, take your baby. Away. Baby was ill. I remember getting a phone call over the Christmas holiday, you know, well, where can I get a doctor, you know. Um, it, it was a strange time. We'd lost a cup tie, got somewhere where we shouldn't have done. Was it York City? York City, York City, yeah. York City, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, and the the mood afterwards, you could feel that there was something going on in the club. Well, I'll tell you, you know, funny you should mention that, but I it was the first occasion I went on the team bus, yeah, York. Yeah. Well, it wasn't the first occasion, but it was an occasion I come, and I've never been so terrified yeah. on the way back from a game after you you were like I've never seen you. You know, you were yeah. so angry and you were so you didn't you didn't shout <coughs> or you were so angry and you were so disappointed and yeah. felt let down. I mean, you know. But but I guess that was, you know, the standards you had and, and what you expected from this side. We, we'd also lost, I think, at Port Vale. That's right. Um, yeah. And I, I'd made one or two decisions that night, you know, and, and about changes in the side. And um, I still had ideas, you know. I mean, as I mentioned before, Peter and I, Peter Johnson and I are still great friends. And we never actually fell out. What we did was we lost faith in each other for a couple of days, and Cliff Finch was out of Cliff Finch was out of the country at the time, and he was usually I wouldn't say he was a buffer because we never argued as such, no. but he would be a mediator, and um, and we both came up with this ridiculous decision that we would part company by mutual consent. I, I always remember the day, um, and we've sort of fast forwarded a little bit before, I, you know, before I wanted to. But I was in the office at Goodison at the Park End, and in the office was a young lad called Jamie Spear, who you'll remember. I remember Spear the of, goalkeeper, yeah. yeah. And there was this tension, and I was told by Michael Dunford at the time, "Stand by the facts," you know, because obviously it was faxes in them days. Yeah. Stand by the facts. Don't move from the facts. So I said, "Okay, we're, we're going to be sending something over." It was coming from Park Foods, and then. And then he's saying, what is it, what is it? And I said, I don't, you know, he was a nosy bugger, was, was, was Jamie. Jamie. And, uh, and I said, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and I was obviously trying to keep it quiet. And, and the next minute, this fax comes through and it said, you know, it was about your, you know, you, you leaving the club. And, yeah. and, and he, no way, he was saying, you know, Jamie Spear. Yeah. And I think he was coming in for a renew his contract, I think. Yeah. And, um, but it, it was a terrible moment be, for us, you know, because obviously everyone enjoyed working in the club. And how was it for you? How? how I mean, I, listen, there was no one lower than me. No. Um, I went straight back to Goodison, and then the news had got around by then when I got back from Park. Uh, and Les Helm met me. He said, Is it true, Joe? I said, Yeah, Les. I said, We're, I'm, I'm on my way. He said, So am I. He said, I've had enough of this place. Mm. And Les left. Yeah. Les left, you know, and he'd been. He was a great football physio, Les. He was. Uh, he was. Nobody messed around with Les, put it that way. You know, he was. He he was. A, he was a top 
medical man. He was a top motivator. He had a great spirit about him. And he was as sad as I was. He said, Joe, I've had enough of this. And what was, what was really behind you think? I mean, there was the story about Andre Flo, wasn't there? And, and whether you, the other guy was coming and he, you could only get him. And was there anything in that? It, no, well, it, it had started really um, when I wanted to sign Mark Schwarzer. You know, I mean, mm. Neville had come to the end of it. He'd, he'd been a legendary goalkeeper, but it was time for a new keeper. And Schwarzer, I wanted to sign. He came to the ground. He came to the ground with his agent, Barry Silkman. Yeah. And. Um, Peter patently didn't want to make the sign-in. You know, he, he'd he offered him way In the end, he went to Bradford, you know, and That's they right, were offering yeah. him better wages than we were. And it was then afterwards that Peter and I had a little bit of a disagreement that um, when Cliff was there and the, the buffer stepped in and, you know, sort of verbally pulled us apart. So... You know, there was still that little bit in mind and then the, the tour Andrew Flo thing. And I don't think Peter could get his, his head around the fact that we were going to pay £2 million for a guy that was going to be a free transfer in the summer. The, the problem was, of course, that, the, you know, there would be bigger payers than us the in the summer. Yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. And, um, and Waggy was injured and uh, one of the agents, there seemed to be agents everywhere trying to do the deal, but one of the agents has said his best friend is a centre-back called Klaus Efterhag. Efterberg, yeah. Efterhag. Oh, Efterhag it was, yeah. And uh, and um, he was coming as a sort of uh, make-weight in the deal. Um, But it it never got done. Peter didn't want it to happen. And that really... And I'd gone over then, it was deadline day, and I'd made my way over to see Peter at Park Foods, and, and we had this... I don't know, it was more like an healing comedy, you know, it's, uh, well, do you want to go? Well, do you want me to go? Uh, and it, You say goodbye first. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a little bit like that, you know. Mm. And But we, we've we been, we've spent many an hour in Mallorca, Cliff, myself, Peter, shaking our heads. Mm. And, did you uh, regret it? I mean, it, it was at a time when you said, why did I do that, or... Why did I, you know, I mean... It, My father could never understand why I... He said, why do you do it? I said, do what? He said, why did you leave, Evan? I said, well, I didn't. He said, but you did. I said, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's not easy to explain, not you know. Not simple, yeah. And, and it wasn't that simple. And Peter, as I say, has is, is expressed his regret. Uh, he said to me, you just came over for a shoulder to cry on and... and a pat on the back, didn't you? I said, well, a bit of reassurance would have been nice. But um, anyhow, I mean, he, he, he's got a, a giggly sense of humour. When So Tor Andre Flo went to Chelsea um, on a free, um, got paid massive wages. And Chelsea then sold him to Rangers for 12 million, which I constantly remind Peter about. Uh, Swarter had gone to Bradford and then became one of the longest service goalkeepers around mm. and who knows do, do, do you think you being so passionate about Everton and being a former player and, and all that, do you think that sort of made your decision a little bit easier, easy is not the word but do you think you, you, it, you, you got to that decision quicker because of the passion that you feel for the what club? What decision? Well, the decision to sort of part ways mutually or if, um, 
do you know what I mean? Sometimes that passion can can make yeah, you can be too close too close to yeah. the fire. I know what you're saying. Probably you haven't meant too much to me, and I I didn't want to see we we were I never in any danger of going down. You know, I, no. I certainly probably wouldn't have left had, had I thought there was any danger of us going down. Yeah. But um, and then Peter started saying things like uh, we're going to have a, a world class manager now. Yeah. I, I reminded him later, and he apologised. I said, "Listen, do you, you not realise what we did in less than in one full season? I was only there one full season." Uh, as I say, he's, he's a great friend. <laughs> but in the ensuing weeks, I can promise you, it wasn't a good time. I can promise you that. But we'll end now, Joe, on on you know something which I and I think. I don't want to embarrass you, but I think I remember my moment, and and I have to say, you know, I've spoken to Anders Limpar lately, who said you were the best manager he ever he ever worked under. Nick Barnby was was glowing about how you managed him, you know, and what you did and the way you managed. And I remember being on a on the first day I started, we had an away game at Chelsea, and uh, we were on the and you invited me on the team bus, which I was quite shocked at, you know, because you know because I was the press officer and it didn't really happen and I got on the bus and I was at the back of the bus minding my own business staying out the way as Duncan on, on his bed as Duncan would do and I remember the hearing the shout where's Myers where's Myers <laughs> and and you call me down the front you ask Willie Donachy to move across the, the yeah. coach and, and, and on onto that and I'm getting somewhere with this but and I sat and you said to me sit here and you made me sat I think you realized the Evertonian I was and still am and and you said watch this you know and we drove into Stamford Bridge and the guy was on the lamppost. You remember, yeah, he used to yeah, always yeah, climb yeah. the lamppost. And, and I've never, to this day, I've never felt um, passion like that, you know, yeah. to be an Evertonian. And you gave me that. And I'll never forget the, the feeling I had, which was ridiculous, really, was that I want to play for him. You know, yeah. and believe me, you would have been in a lot more trouble than, any, <laughs> than ever if you had that ever happened. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, do you think your man management, when you look back at your management career, do you think your man management was your your crowning sort of thing? Um, most important thing at a football club is recruitment. Um, second is handling the recruitment or handling the man management, and the third side is coaching. Uh, coaching because you do it five days a week uh, and it's all towards a Saturday. Um, put it this way, I'm proud of my record. Every Everywhere I managed, something happened. And, uh, yeah, we, I'm not going to be immodest. I am proud of my record. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The teammate you trusted the most? Willie Donachy. Okay. Opponent that you avoided the most? Ron Yates. <laughs> Your favourite boots? Puma. Yeah. Was there a name? Was there a name on it? Is it just Puma World Cup. World Cup, love it. Uh, the manager or coach that you had most respect for? Harry Catterick. Uh The favourite away dressing room? Arsenal. Marble floors, heated. Everyone says that. Every yeah. single person says it. Uh, the opposition fans that gave you most stick? Millwall, really, as a manager, uh, a position that you'd have played if you didn't play your own. Uh, centre half. I joined Everton as a wing half, centre half. Really, yeah. uh, biggest mistake you made in your career? <sighs> Leaving Everton, which time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the best decision you ever made in your career? 
John in heaven. I was going to say that follows, doesn't it? Uh, the most prized football possession you have? Ah, uh, God. I, I honestly couldn't say. Look, there's a room full there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, the club you could have joined but didn't? Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea. That'll do. A player that you'd pay to watch anytime? Um... Andre Kanchelskis, Anders Limpar, or Messi. I love it. Good company. Uh, the thing you most like about football, Joe? Passion, excitement, fulfilment. And the thing you hate most about football? Negativity. Uh, the best goal you ever scored for Everton? Um, they all count the same, you know, whether it's a 30 yard volley, which I never did. Um, I scored for Everton. Best goal people people would talk about a diving header at Leeds. Okay, if you weren't a footballer, what sport would you have played? Again, I've got to be a modest. I was a I was a, a top young cricketer, opening bowler and batsman. I swam for Liverpool. I was City high jump champion. I would think probably cricket. Okay, uh, biggest lesson you learned in the game. Never make big decisions on a Saturday night. Okay. And finally, how would you like to be remembered? Um, as an honest broker who managed Devon. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed listening to Joe there. I've done a good few interviews, you know, on this podcast and and I've enjoyed them all. But some like Colin Harvey's, like Dave Thomas and certainly that one with Joe just mean that little bit more. Of course, I would have loved to have been able to talk with Howard Kendall um, on the Everton podcast. Uh, Sadly, that's not going to happen. Anyway, sadly, that's the penultimate podcast from me for the time being. I will return again with another series in the future. Hope you've enjoyed them. However, the last episode is a special which will look back at the 95 Cup final with many guests. So I hope you'll enjoy that. It'll be out in the next couple of weeks, uh, I hope. Um, and I hope you enjoyed episode 11. As always, I'd like to thank all those who've contributed. And uh, as always, up to toffees. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.